from the historic triangle of Hampton Roads, Virginia, this is the Past is Prologue podcast. I'm Andrew Falk. Ah, spring. Flowers are blooming and pollen is falling like unwanted yellow confetti. It's also the start of a season of ceremonies and celebrations that commemorate various transitions. This spring, there will be a procession of graduates dressed in symbolic regalia, making their way past crowds of adoring families and friends. They'll be serenaded by the familiar strains of pomp and circumstance. Hooded graduates will toss their tasseled mortarboards in the air as they mark a transition into the next phase of their lives. This spring, we will start to see a procession of couples dressed in long white gowns and formal wear, making their way past crowds of adoring guests, heralded by the familiar strains of organ music and classical strings. Traditional-minded brides will toss their bouquets in the air as the happy couple marks a transition into married life. In London this May, there's a procession of soldiers, horse-drawn carriages and trumpeters, dressed in their gilded finery, filing past crowds of spectators. King Charles III wears a jeweled crown and holds the scepter as his coronation marks his transition into the role of monarch of the United Kingdom. Thousands of Americans on the West Coast wake up at 3 a.m. to tune in. Millions of other Americans undoubtedly tune out and ask, what's the fuss? Why should I care about this extravagance? Buckingham Palace announced that the spectacle costs over $120 million. Can you imagine spending so much money and going to so much trouble? Well, let's face it. The average American wedding costs $25,000 or more. And many of us will endure heat and traffic at graduations and willingly shed more than a few tears at the most emotional moments. What is the purpose of all this pomp and ceremony surrounding events like these? Coronations, weddings, and graduations. What do these springtime rituals and symbols mean? And what do they say about us when we participate and observe? In other words... What's up with all these caps, gowns, and crowns? History can help us understand what's going on in our world. There's a rich history to these public ceremonies, just as there's a history to everything. In thinking about these old symbolic spectacles, I wanted to know more. So I asked historian Charlotte Cartwright, who studies the history of medieval England at Christopher Newport University. She can help explain what's going on. First, let's jump into the original sources to get a glimpse of the past. The English tradition of holding the coronation ceremony at Westminster Abbey dates back to the 11th century. The last Anglo-Saxon king of England, Edward the Confessor, built Westminster Abbey to be his burial church. He died in the year 1065 without any children, leaving multiple claimants to the English throne. The first claimant was an English earl named Harold Godwinson, who was crowned in 1065 as King of England. Another claimant was Duke William of Normandy, known to history as William the Conqueror. William was a cousin of Edward the Confessor and claimed that Edward had named William as his intended heir. Maybe, or maybe not, but in 1066, William invaded England, 
defeated and killed Harold Godwinson and claimed the throne. His coronation at the end of that year is the first documented coronation of an English ruler at Westminster Abbey. There's a fabulous account of the coronation written by the Anglo-Norman monk Orderic Vitalis. According to Orderic, the people of England begged William to hold a coronation because they would not obey anyone except a duly crowned king. So, on Christmas Day, 1066, Orderic tells us that the English, specifically the bishops, abbots, and nobles of England, assembled in Westminster Abbey for the king's coronation. Now, there are hints of tensions in Orderic's account of this ceremony. Norman knights guarded the abbey to prevent any disorder. William was crowned by the Archbishop of York and not the Archbishop of Canterbury, because the Archbishop of Canterbury had been excommunicated five times by five different popes. That's another story. But at William's coronation, the Archbishop of York asked the English if they accepted William as their king. And Bishop Geoffrey of Coutances put the same question to the Normans present. As everyone inside the abbey called out in their own languages that they did accept William, the Norman knights outside heard the shouting thought that some treachery had happened, and proceeded to set fire to buildings outside the abbey. Here's a direct quote from Orderic. Quote, The fire spread rapidly from house to house. The crowd who had been rejoicing in the church took fright, and throngs of men and women of every rank and condition rushed out of the church in frantic haste. Only the bishops and a few clergy and monks remained terrified in the sanctuary and with difficulty completed the consecration of the king, who was trembling from head to foot. Almost all the rest made for the scene of conflagration, some to fight the flames, and many others hoping to find loot for themselves in the general confusion. Welcome to the podcast, Charlotte. That uh, first coronation ceremony is very visual and dramatic and uh, a lot more chaotic than the heavily scripted events that typically play out in London today. Your description of William's coronation shows how delicate of an operation it, it is to transfer power and to legitimize that transition with rituals. I think the ceremonial transition of power often hovers just above political tension and social disorder and violence like you talked about. And as we all witnessed occurring at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, prior to the inauguration of President Biden, the tension in your story is, is familiar, um, but clearly there are differences. It's been, I mean, 70 long years since the last coronation, so I think a royal coronation is rather foreign to us independence-loving Americans. Uh, so can you tell us what exactly is the purpose of the spectacle? This is a really interesting question because it's a question that people in the Middle Ages, including crowned kings, also were asking. Um, and I do think that we make a mistake if we assume that there was an agreed upon or understood meaning to the ritual of coronation. Uh, one of the key questions that no one could resolve was what role the coronation played in the making of a king. Early medieval monarchs, so in England we're talking roughly from the 600s to the 900s AD, uh, were not crowned and did not inherit by right of birth. What made a king was the approval of the leading men and women of the realm. New kings often came from the family of a previous king, but they didn't have to. 
Now, by the later Middle Ages, and here I'm thinking more kind of toward the 14th century, so the 1300s, the theory of divine right of kingship, uh, meaning a belief that royal authority derived from God, combined with rules of inheritance, meant that the heir, generally the eldest son, succeeded and was recognized as king by right of birth. Given that, the coronation in the later Middle Ages was not what made the king the king. But there is a power in following the traditions and customs, in showing that God approved of the accession of the new king with divine approval signaled by allowing the ceremony to happen. Mm. I recently watched uh, Elizabeth II's 1953 coronation online on YouTube, and I noted that at her coronation, she was referred to as Her Majesty and the Queen, even before she entered Westminster Abbey. So the coronation for her was an important ceremony, but it wasn't what made her the monarch. That was her right of birth uh, and her ascension after the death of her father. Well, funny you should mention that because in preparation for our conversation, I also watched <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II's <laughs> coronation on YouTube. Um, we could have gotten together and had popcorn. Totally should have. Uh, you mentioned the divine right of kings. Compared to a presidential inauguration, I was struck by how much religion played a part in declaring her the head of state. Yeah. I understand she was a religious woman and she headed the Church of England as the defender of the faith, as all monarchs since Henry VIII have. And of course, that the Archbishop of Canterbury presided at the coronation. Yet, Prince Charles stirred controversy, or controversy, as they say, by stating that because of Britain's religious diversity, Charles would be defender of faith rather than defender of the faith. Rather important little article, <laughs> the turns out to be. Yeah. My question is, does the coronation hold any real religious significance, even symbolically? It does, yeah. Uh, coronation of monarchs in Western Europe was introduced in the 8th century uh, by the Carolingian monarchs of the territory known as Francia, what is roughly today where France and Germany are. And this was done in alliance with the papacy in Rome, in Italy, and culminated in the coronation of Charlemagne as emperor in Rome on Christmas Day, 800 AD. Uh, this ceremony sent the precedent for coronation rituals throughout medieval Europe, and it is very religious. The ritual involved anointing, in which the king or queen would be smeared with a holy oil. Hmm. And the practice of anointing kings goes back to the Bible, where kings David and Solomon were both anointed. And the practice continued as both Jewish and Christian traditions called for the anointing of priests as part of ordination into the priesthood. Uh, Charles will, in fact, be anointed with oil that was consecrated in Jerusalem at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Hmm. And so the idea is the oil carries a tangible connection to God. And medieval kings and queens gained religious authority as a result of this ceremony, which led to a kind of an interesting question of, did the ruler get his or her power from the church, from those who perform the anointing? Or after the anointing, did the church serve the anointed king or queen? Um, and I think we see some of those tensions and ambiguities in Charles's statements about his position today. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I imagine we can see some parallels with other ceremonies than with sworn oaths and religious readings. Um, even in a country that purports to separate church and state, I know that the inauguration of presidents and oaths of other officials often culminates with, you know, so help me God. 
even though the oath is in the Constitution, but the so help me God part is not. Right, right. How do other European monarchs handle this transition? It's a really interesting comparison because other European monarchs, um, such as the kings of Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, etc., do not have coronations. Hmm. Uh, there, the monarch is acclaimed as king, and if there is a ceremony, it's to swear an oath to uphold the law. And the acclamation and swearing of the oath typically happen within a day of the death of the previous monarch, and there's no further ceremony, no further pomp and circumstance. Well, you raise an interesting point about the timing, then, of these transitions of power. They're meant to be seamless and peaceful and immediate. In the United States, we hold an election in November, and then the inauguration is just weeks later. And even in the UK, the transition between one prime minister to the next could be a matter of hours. In Britain, uh, just six months ago, Prime Minister Liz Truss barely unpacked her belongings before (laughs) she was booted out. And just hours later, there's a new prime minister. Uh, If you blink, you missed it. Um, But with the British monarch, isn't it about a year? It can vary a lot, and it has varied a lot throughout English history. Um, A really interesting example of the effects of the delay between becoming king and having a coronation is the case of Charles's great-uncle, Edward VIII. Edward became king in January of 1936 when his father, George V, died. And Edward's coronation was planned for over a year later. It was going to be in May of 1937. But in that in-between period, the king abdicated or resigned amid a scandal to marry the divorced American Wallace Simpson. So Edward VIII was a king without a coronation. And when Edward VIII abdicated, his younger brother became King George VI. And since plans were already underway for Edward's coronation, they did not change the dates. They didn't change the arrangement. They just slotted King George and his wife Elizabeth in and anointed and crowned him in place of Edward. Mm. So the coronation, again, is kind of not what makes a king a king. But the ceremony is still seen as a, a crucial step in legitimating royal authority. And for context, let me take you all the way back to the very first recorded coronation of an Anglo-Saxon king in England, which took place in the year 973. The ceremony was devised and overseen by the Archbishop of Canterbury to crown King Edgar of Wessex, and Edgar had already been king for 15 years at that point. So the purpose of the coronation ceremony was not initiation of the reign, but much more so to celebrate Edward's reign at the height of his power and authority. And after Edgar's reign, Anglo-Saxon kings sometimes chose to have a coronation, but the ceremony was not required to become a king or queen. Um, In the later Middle Ages, particularly after William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest of England, kings were typically crowned much more quickly, generally within a few days of the death of their predecessors. So I see the timing varies, but there's still a script of sorts, isn't there? Yeah, and, and by the 1300s, the form of the ritual is really established in England. The monarch is presented to those who are present in the abbey to be acclaimed, and this act remembers the practice of choosing kings by popular election rather than by inheritance. Uh, then the king or queen swears an oath to uphold the laws of the realm and to rule justly, and then you have the ceremony of anointing kind of in the context of a religious mass. Uh, culminating with placing the crown on the head of the king or queen. Well, speaking of placing the crown on the head, it's interesting how many of these ceremonies have symbolic headwear. A graduate's mortarboard cap, a bride's veil. I mean, these things you don't typically see people wearing out on the street. 
So I'd like to turn to the symbolism of the tchotchkes surrounding King Charles. <laughs> Aside from a scepter and an orb and a robe and various other things, the most prominent is undoubtedly the crown with its five pounds of gold and precious gems, which is housed with other crown jewels in the Tower of London. Some of our listeners may have seen if they traveled there. And I see that Buckingham Palace officially introduced to its Twitter feed a new emoji of the St. Edward's crown. And we can talk about the purpose of using that technology in a moment. But first, why is that crown the symbol of royalty? Well, it's St. Edward's crown, and it is named for King Edward the Confessor, the last Anglo-Saxon king of England before the Norman Conquest. Edward had a coronation at the beginning of his reign, and he then followed the medieval practice of wearing his crown at court feasts during the major Christian holidays, especially at Easter, Whitsun, and Christmas. So-called crown wearings were a way for kings and queens to display their power and their right to rule, especially for those who did not or could not have attended the actual coronation. When Edward died in 1065, he gave his crown and his robes to the monks of Westminster Abbey, where they would, were kept with his tomb um, and eventually became relics of the Saint King. And to this day, many people bow or curtsy to the crown itself as it passes by, not just to the person wearing it. I see. So the crown itself, the object, is viewed as a relic symbolizing the nation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's turn to a different ceremony that Americans will be maybe more familiar with. What can you tell us about the historical roots of the robes and the regalia worn at high school graduations and college commencements across the country? I mean, they're colorful and they're special, but let's face it, black velvet gowns seem like a decidedly poor fashion choice in the blazing <laughs> sun of May and June. That's true. Can you tell us what's behind the fashion, the processions, and the purposes of graduation and commencement ceremonies? Yeah, I can, and I am sure it will not be much comfort to know that academic regalia, especially the wearing of the long gown, has origins in the Middle Ages. And one theory for why the faculty and students wore gowns was to keep warm in unheated stone classrooms at medieval universities. Um, the other thing is that the gowns were probably very similar to those worn by clergy, since most university faculty and students in the medieval period were members of the Catholic clergy. Unlike today, gowns were worn by students at all times. Did those gowns cover their medieval yoga pants and pajamas? <laughs> As someone who used to teach in the frozen north, you do what you got to do to keep warm. <laughs> I won't lie. But uh, so historians do think another purpose for the regalia may have been to differentiate students from townspeople, the classic town and gown dichotomy there. Um, and that was actually brought over into the United States uh, during the colonial period. The colleges that would become Columbia and Princeton required their students to wear gowns at all times. But gradually, most institutions have moved to only wearing regalia at university ceremonies. And gowns used to originally were mostly black or gray. But today, institutions often give doctoral gowns in a variety of bright colors. And I myself get to wear red, which I'm very happy about, and very pleased to have a gown that is knee length, which is most welcome when sitting outside in May in the Virginia heat. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Uh, I also want to make a note about the terminology because I think this is really interesting. Uh, commencement has its origins, again, in the medieval period, in the medieval master's degree, Students who obtained a master's joined the faculty of the university and could thus commence teaching alongside the other masters. 
And we use commencement today as a synonym for graduation, a term that originates with the Latin word gradus, meaning a step. And the earning of the degree was a step along the path to joining the masters of the university and becoming part of the community of scholars there. And commencement, therefore, suggests commencing or starting out into the world. Yeah, yeah. Not just ending your studies. Um, well, let's put a spotlight on the role of the crowd of spectators, the family, friends, and guests at these ceremonies in spring. The palace announced that Charles wants a, quote, more modest procession <laughs> past the crowds. So he'll ride in one horse-drawn carriage to Westminster Abbey and along a shorter route than his mother had. He'll pass the statue of King Charles I, who was beheaded in 1649, so awkward moment there, I suppose. <laughs> and then he'll return to the palace in a gilded coach pulled by eight horses. I think the term modest is open to some interpretation, <laughs> but surely hopping into a Mini Cooper would probably be a lot quicker and less fuss. So why has he inherited this big spectacle of a procession? Well, this, this again goes back to the medieval period, and it is part of the coronation. And the procession, I think, really does come from a time before print media, television, and movies. And it was a way for the new monarch to be seen and acclaimed and accepted by the people. And it's, again, going back to this idea of acclamation and approval from the people making a king. Uh, but our first recorded procession into London by an English monarch comes from 1377, when the new king was a nine-year-old child. Mm. The boy King Richard II came to the throne. And so a public procession to Westminster Abbey was added to the coronation ritual. And Richard's arrival in London for his coronation was a ceremonial one designed to evoke the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem from wow, the Bible. That's yeah. a pretty bold choice to compare oneself to Jesus. It's true. They apparently even had a fake castle decorated to be like a new Jerusalem just to drive the point home. <laughs> and Londoners participated in the event. So they lined the streets to see the new king pass by. Stops were arranged where pageants were performed for the king. Uh, young Richard, we know, rode with his uncle, the Duke of Lancaster, who paid for the city's water supply to run with wine. Wow, turning water into <laughs> wine, but no miracle there. No, no. Uh, and from the 14th century onward, the, the formal pr procession on horseback through the city with regular stops where clergy or members of the city's guilds could perform pageants for the new monarch become a standard part. Of, of the coronation ritual. And I think that these parts of the coronation ritual are still rooted in the idea that people must acclaim and accept their king. So a ride in a coach today at a slower pace than in a car, mm -hmm. kind of evoking past ceremonies and giving people the opportunity to really see the king, not just in a flash as, as he drives by, and this kind of visual of the long procession down the route of cheering crowds hopefully cheering crowds, <laughs> evokes the idea, right, of the acclamation of the people to England and is part of the legitimacy of the monarchy. That's interesting. Um, I suppose the graduation procession and the wedding procession serve much the same purpose. Mm, yeah. And that is a public affirmation, a recognition of this person's or couple's transition in status. Um, a lot of attention is on the monarch and the graduate and the brides and the grooms. But the audience, the people, are really active participants in these events. Um, a friend of ours, Philip Hamilton, told me about the great English diarist Samuel Pepys. Ah, yes. Who recorded his observations of the coronation of the last King Charles, Charles II, in 1661. 
Pepys wrote in his descriptive diary, this is a great primary source, by the way, about the partying that accompanied the event, quote, we drank the king's health and nothing else till one of the gentlemen fell down stark drunk and there lay spewing. And no sooner a bed went I, but my head began to hum and I to vomit before I fell asleep and slept till morning. Only when I waked, I found myself wet with my spewing. Thus did the day end with joy everywhere and blessed be God, end quote. That's a lot of drinking, spewing, and joy. I imagine Samuel Pepys would have had a pretty good time as a guest at a lot of modern-day weddings and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> yes, and I, I have read Pepys' diaries, and I, I recommend them to anyone who's interested in 17th century England. <laughs> I would absolutely agree. He'd do well today. Uh, yeah, and, and th this is fun, actually, because Charles II's coronation marks a turning point. And after that coronation, after 1661, uh, the grand procession through the streets of London actually fell out of fashion, was dropped from the coronation ceremony entirely. It was revived in the 1800s, most notably in 1837, for the coronation of Queen Victoria. And she was crowned at a time when the monarchy was increasingly unpopular and was seen as archaic and out of touch with the people of modern England. And in 1837, railways meant that ordinary people and people of the lower classes could travel to London to witness her coronation. It sounds like there was something of a big kind of street festival, hmm. um, camp people camping out in parks so they could see the queen. And it was Victoria who actually first rode through the city in the Golden State coach that Charles will be using. So Charles can thank her. Or for curse what, her. What <laughs> is reportedly a very uncomfortable mode of transportation. <laughs> Well, the inclusion of the people as witnesses and participants is uh, obviously an important aspect of many of these ceremonies. The act of announcing and proclaiming the transition of status matters, hmm. though the medium of, and technology has changed. Aside from bells and bonfires, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation was famously broadcast on early television in June 1953, and Charles III's is the first in the age of the internet, live streaming, tweets, and uh, podcasting. Is, is this significant? It, well, it, I think it is. Because, I mean, we were both able to watch Elizabeth II's coronation from 1953 here in the year 2023 in our living rooms on our laptops. Uh, and her coronation was very famously the first to be televised. But uh, her father and mother's coronation in 1937 was recorded, and I also watched that on YouTube. Yeah. So you can go watch the highlights from that event on the internet as well. I don't think that any of them could have imagined that in, within their lifetime or the lifetime of their children, that this event, their coronation inside Westminster Abbey, could be replayed on demand all around the entire world. Um, and even before that, the print media in the 1800s really, I think, changed coronation with heavy publication of major ceremonies, uh, really particularly from Queen Victoria's reign, not just her coronation, but also her wedding were major events that were covered in print media at the time. She certainly did keep the royal caterers busy, yeah, didn't she? Yeah. So do the historical sources tell us whether Queen Victoria was as influential in her wedding rituals as she was in other ones? She was. Victoria's wedding was definitely a trendsetter, and especially her wedding dress. Um, so for context, throughout history in the Western world, most women could not afford a special dress just for a wedding. So you, you would get married in the best dress that you owned in whatever color that was. 
Now, wealthy families who could afford a special gown for a bride preferred to show off their wealth with expensive dyed fabric. Uh, my students every year actually read a letter written in the 15th century arranging the purchase of a gown of either blue or blood red. Wow. Yeah, with gold embroidery uh, for an aristocratic bride. And this would then be trimmed in fur, we're told in this letter. Mm. Uh, so royal brides typically wore the most expensive fabric of all, which was cloth of gold. This is fabric woven out of silk threads, wrapped in the thinnest, finest coating of actual gold gilt. So the fabric shimmers in the light. And Queen Victoria went against all this tradition when she was married in 1840. At that time, the monarchy, as I said, was really unpopular. So Victoria's wedding was an act of propaganda, with the queen dressed in white, symbolizing purity and innocence, um, and really intended to highlight the romance of the wedding and appeal to kind of popular culture and people of the lower classes. Um, magazines aimed at middle-class women included pictures of Victoria's white silk and lake, lace dress, and brides throughout Europe and the Americas began to copy her style, and this is really why white to this day remains the standard color for brides. Oh, well, you've reminded me that the unmarried Queen Elizabeth I mm -hmm. claimed innocence to have married her nation in order to retain power as a female monarch yes. rather than literally marry another king. So royal marriage, like coronation, marks a political transition as well. It absolutely does, yeah. I, I want to return to something that you said earlier when you mentioned that Edward VIII gave up the throne to marry a divorced American woman, Wallace Simpson. Do you see any significance to the coronation of uh, Camilla, another divorced woman, as the consort? And does anything in history help us understand some of the gender dynamics here? Oh, okay. So coronation of women in England is interesting. The earliest coronation of a queen actually took place in 856, uh, which is earlier than the earliest recorded coronation <laughs> of a king. Um, and as I said earlier, Anglo-Saxon kings and queens typically didn't have a coronation. Uh, but in the year five, five, eight, sorry, in the year 855, Ethelwolf of Wessex traveled to the continent seeking to make an alliance marriage with the Frankish ruler Charles the Bald, who was the grandson of Charlemagne. Charles the Bald allowed his daughter Judith to marry Ethelwolf and travel back to England with him. However, chroniclers at the time noted that Charles the Bald was concerned for his daughter, all alone in a new country where she would be an outsider, and Charles was worried that his daughter would be isolated or even mistreated. So he insisted that Judith be anointed and crowned as queen to have that kind of divine consecration before leaving home so that it would be harder for Ethelwolf to set her aside. Um, we actually have a record that Judith was anointed with myrrh, and crowned by the Archbishop of Rheims as part of the wedding ceremony before she married Ethelwolf. And I really like this anecdote because I think it shows the power of coronation, that to be a crowned queen or king was different than just to be the wife of the monarch or the monarch by acclamation of the people. So clearly they didn't have a joint coronation. No. Um, in fact, Ethelwolf is another interesting case because he had been made a sub-king under his father hmm. um, and actually probably had his coronation and consecration before his father died and he became king on his own uh, and that was 20 years before he married Judith so they're they're definitely separate uh, but that's pretty typical um, many queens in the middle ages would be crowned separately for their husbands because um, it actually works out that it's quite common for queens to marry already reigning kings 
So then they'll have a coronation after their wedding. I, I will say one of the most famous and well-documented coronations of a queen is that of Anne Boleyn, who was crowned after her marriage to Henry VIII. Now, very famously, of course, Henry VIII left his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, with whom he had been crowned in a double coronation in 1509, uh, to marry Anne in 1529. When the Pope refused to grant an annulment of Henry's marriage to Catherine, Henry ended up breaking with Rome, rejecting papal supremacy over England. Um, and it took four years before Henry was able to marry Anne. And even then, the wedding took place in secret and before the final official annulment of Henry's first marriage. Hmm. So all this irregularity placed, I think, even more importance on the coronation of Anne as a show of order and tradition and custom and thus legitimacy. So we have this fabulous record that uh, Anne's coronation took place over five days. She entered London on the first day by barge along the River Thames, and the citizens of London put on water pageants for her to celebrate her entrance. Uh, she went to the Tower of London, and then on the following day, she processed from the Tower through the city of London to Westminster Abbey. Uh, she wore a robe made of cloth of gold, and her hair was loose down around her shoulders, which was the attire specified for a queen at her coronation. Uh, at Westminster, she was given a purple robe to wear, anointed, and in a complete break with tradition, she was crowned first with St. Edward's crown, hmm. and then with her own personal crown. And typically, only a king is crowned with St. Edward's crown, and I don't think Camilla will be crowned with St. Edward's crown. No. Uh, in the upcoming coronation. Um, and I think the use of this crown in an Anne's coronation was probably because Anne would have been very visibly pregnant, uh, six months pregnant at the time of this coronation. And Henry was convinced that she was carrying his much longed for male heir. So the use of St. Edward's of St. Edward's crown maybe was to signal that Anne's child would be the next ruler of England and would be born to a queen who'd been crowned with the official crown. Of course, as it turned out, that child was Elizabeth, since you mentioned Elizabeth right. I earlier. Um, and Elizabeth I would have her own coronation in 1558, although she's going to have to wait, would have to wait for her brother and her elder sister uh, to rule first. I recall that Anne Boleyn returned to the Tower of London for less that pleasant That is also reasons. true, yes. She was beheaded there. Um, uh, marriage is a union, of course, and you've explained how it can be a personal union as well as a political union. The coronation also is a public way to endorse a political union, such as the United Kingdom, made up of England and Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Charles is to be crowned as the monarch of the United Kingdom while sitting on a special throne with the Scottish Stone of Scone or Stone of Destiny lying underneath. Can you tell us the significance of that stone? I can. So uh, medieval Scottish monarchs would traditionally sit on a stone seat. It's literally a block of sandstone at Schoon Abbey. Uh, scones are the baked goods. Uh, Schoon is the abbey. But some scones are rock hard. That is also, they are not good scones, but they do exist. Uh, and in any case, medieval Scottish monarchs would be sitting on the stone seat at Schoon Abbey when they were acclaimed as king. This practice is so old that it was ancient when it was first recorded in writing, so we really don't know exactly when it originated. Um, and when another Edward, Edward I, invaded Scotland in the early 1300s, he seized the stone as loot and then had a special coronation chair built back in England with this space for the stone to be placed under the seat. So for the last 700 years, English monarchs have been crowned in that chair on the seat that is on top of the stone. 
Uh, now, in the 1990s, amid calls for Scottish independence, the stone was returned to Scotland, and it's on display in Edinburgh Castle. Uh, so this will be the first coronation since that move, since it was returned. And so the stone will be taken from Edinburgh Castle to Westminster Abbey and put into the coronation chair before then being returned to Scotland to be put on display. And I know that you and I have both led uh, students from Christopher Newport on the, the semester study abroad program at the University of Glasgow. And we have both taken students, I believe, to mm -hmm. see the stone at Edinburgh Castle. Uh, my group actually went last fall. So my students arrived just one day before the death of the Queen, and we went to Edinburgh Castle two weeks later. And I will admit that there was some joking around about the possibility of distracting the guards and staging a quick coronation on the stone and making ourselves rightful rulers of Scotland before Charles <laughs> could get in yeah. and have his chance. Well, I'm not so sure the proud Scots would accept either of us as their monarch any Probably more than they not. might accept no. Charles. No. Well, actually, this is a perfect seg to a final question for you. As someone who has attended university in England and Wales and lived for a time in Scotland. I'm wondering how you think the coronation lands in those places. A lot has changed since Elizabeth II was crowned in the 1950s. It's a much diminished empire. So I imagine there's some side-eye contempt mm. for um, the people in the Republic of Ireland, maybe India, throughout Africa, even for nationalists right now in Scotland and other parts of the United Kingdom. So my question is, is a coronation a cause for celebration or is it also fuel for resistance or something else? I think it can be all of those things. And connecting actually to your question earlier, where we were talking about technology, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how the coronation plays on social media, mm -hmm. which we obviously don't know how that's going to work out. Um, but I will admit, I've, I've pulled my friends, and I will my friends are mostly English, about the coronation. And the overwhelming sense that I get is one of ambivalence if not outright apathy. Um, they're happy to have an extra national holiday, get a day off of work, but none of them are celebrating or even particularly interested. I think they might be more excited about Eurovision being back in the UK <laughs> the following week. Um, and you think then more internationally, more broadly, we've already seen Barbados declare itself a republic and get rid of having the queen as their monarch back in 2021. And I know that after the queen's death, there's a lot of more talk, particularly in the Caribbean, in the Bahamas, Belize, states like Jamaica, about making similar moves uh, to really divorce themselves from that English colonial heritage. And at home in the UK, my sense is there's a lot of criticism about cost, um, especially at a time when train drivers and postal workers and teachers and doctors and nurses are having to go on strike to try to win cost of living pay increases at a time of double digit inflation in the UK. So I think it will be really interesting to see how the actual coronation itself uh, might spark other Commonwealth countries to discuss removing Charles as head of state or even possibly change the impasse around the discussions of Scottish independence. So watch this space. Yeah. Well, the ceremonies this spring, it seems, revolve around themes of tradition as well as change. Thanks for joining us today, Charlotte. Thank I, you for having me. I appreciate learning more. When we pause to participate in, observe, and remember these rituals and ceremonies, we consciously mark the passage of time. To that extent, these are key events in our lives individually and collectively. Or simply stated, history matters to us. What about you? Will you add the coronation to your schedule on May 6th or bow out? 
If you attend a wedding or graduation, I hope this episode helps you look at it in a new way. And please celebrate responsibly. Try not to pull a Samuel Pepys. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to join us again next time as we use yesterday to help make sense of today. The Past is Prologue podcast is produced at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. Dr. Charlotte Cartwright is Senior Lecturer of History at Christopher Newport. The podcast is made possible by generous support from the Department of History, the College of Arts and Humanities, and Dean Jana Adamitis, the Ferguson Center for the Arts, and Bruce Bronstein, the Media Center Studio at the Triple Library. Thanks also to researcher Catherine Allen, sound engineer Ketch Kelly, content specialist Emily Dugan, and archivist Matt Shelley. Our theme music is Care of Coma Media. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Please email us at pastpodcast at cnu.edu. Thank you for listening. I'm Andrew Falk. <laughs>